Welcome to the Northridge Church Podcast, a weekly rewind of Sunday's talk. Thank you, everyone. You may be seated. And as you're taking your seat, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 18. We're going to continue this uh, walk through the book of Acts, and we're coming towards the end of it. And, and like I said to you a few moments ago, this has been a, a good passage for me to personally study um, in my own life um, because it deals with something that I struggle with, and I think that every single one of us struggle with, and that is the feelings that we come across sometimes when we are discouraged. And maybe you walked in here today with some issues on your heart um, that you've been discouraged about. Maybe you have spent a lot of time thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking, and the more you think about your situation, it kind of gets you in a little rut because you can't figure out what to do next. And kind of like what I said in in our prayer time, that maybe you're in a place in your life where this discouraging season has been a, a long-term season because your situation is not temporary, um, but it may be a very long-term and maybe for some of us in this room, a permanent place to be. And all I can do is take you to the Word of God this morning and hope to the Word of God that He can speak to us His truth in the midst of your personal discouragement. I, I can't believe in, a, in an audience this size this morning um, that there's not one of you in this room um, that can say, I can identify <laughs> with discouragement. Maybe some of you can say, you know what, discouragement has been a friend of mine for way too long, and I need to know how to face it um, today. And when I get up the next morning, tomorrow morning, and when I go throughout my week, and as I go throughout my life, what can I do with discouragement? Um, I was been, when I was looking into discouragement, I came across an article out of Psychology Today. Uh, it was published back in November 2015. And what it says is this. It says, many people will say that discouragement is also an aspect of depression. But this article says that discouragement is not an act or not a state of depression, though if left without dealing with it properly, can lead to times of depression. Instead, instead, discouragement is a state of being in which we cannot find a way out of. In other words, we are in a difficult place that in life that we cannot, in our own human understanding, know how to get out of. Situations that are beyond your resolve Situations that are beyond your comprehension can lead to discouragement. And this discouragement, this is where it's very, it's very powerful for us to understand this. If discouragement gets out of control in our life, it will have a deep impact on our faith in God. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, I'm sure many of you have read this book called The Screwtape Letters, the Screwtape Letters, if you haven't, by the way, I encourage you to read it because it's a fictional account based on tremendous theological truths. And this book is a series of letters 
uh, between uh, two, uh, two, th- two beings. One is, his name is Screwtape, and he is a, a chief uh, demon. And, and these letters are to his nephew named Wormwood. And Wormwood is being mentored by Screwtape on how to deceive people uh, away from trusting in God. And so they have this one man um, that is uh, under the tutelage of, of, um, of Wormwood. And, and, and C.S. Lewis describes him as the name Patient, P-A-T-I-E-N-T. And he speaks about how Patient has, has come to faith in the enemy. And that's how uh, Screwtape looks at God. He, he is the enemy. And it's up to Wormwood to do whatever is in his power to discourage this man from fully trusting in God. And so one of the, one of the letters that he writes to um, Wormwood, Screwtape talks about um, the power of discouragement. And I, it's a long quote, so I have it on the screen for you. You can follow along with me on the screen. This is what, this is what uh, Screwtape says to Wormwood. Wormwood, work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during this, his first few weeks as a churchman. In other words, churchman meaning a Christian. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when lovers have got married and, and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspirations to laborious doing. The enemy takes this risk because he has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin, right, into what he calls his quote-unquote free lovers and servants and quote-unquote sons in the world he uses. Desiring their freedom, he therefore refuses to carry them by their mere affections and habits to any of the goals which he has set before them. He leaves them to do it on their own, and there lies our opportunity. But, but also remember, their lives are danger. If once they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion and therefore much harder to tempt. Interesting. From C.S. Lewis's perspective, he sees... Um, discouragement or disappointment as a, as a dual means there, right? In one way, Satan can come in and use discouragement um, to get our eyes off of God and become in a state of, of mind in which um, we don't trust God anymore, right? Discouragement sets in, things in life kind of come unraveled, and instead of placing our whole heart and trust in God, we begin to focus on ourselves and in our own abilities. And when our own abilities are unable to get us out of this rut um, that we find ourselves in, then our faith comes under attack. But he also says that it's, just as it's a weapon in the hands of Satan, it's also a tool of encouragement, believe it or not, in the hands of God. For, for this is what God can do with that same discouragement. God can take that same discouragement and teach us not to, not to rationalize everything out of emotions, but to look at our situation based on truth. And, and even when the, when the time comes where even truth um, doesn't be able to see through that, that screen of, of discouragement, that we should come to a place where we trust in the very character and the very working of God, that everything that he does in our life 
right? Those times that our lives are interrupted, those times in which our lives don't make any sense, those times in which it just is very, very difficult, right? That we can trust in the very heart and nature of God, that he is a good and loving heavenly father, and that everything that he allows to come into our lives, both good and bad, both wonderful and heartache, both great and, yes, sometimes even devastating, that in some way, based on his character alone, based on what he reveals to us about himself in Scripture, we have the opportunity to trust in him, knowing that in all things it's for his glory and his good. And trust me, in that moment, you're going to have to wrestle with that, right? We have to wrestle with that truth right there, whether or not we can break through and truly believe in the goodness of God in the midst of our discouragement and disappointment in life. And that is exactly where Paul is at in Acts chapter 18. This great man of the faith, this man who wrote much of the New Testament. And we see a lot of things in, in the scriptures, and especially in the book of Acts, where, where God is moving in a mighty way in Paul's life. But there are, there are times that Paul reminds us that he is just like you and I. That he's not this super, super, superhuman Christian person, but he himself has doubts like you and I have doubts. And that there are moments that he is tremendously discouraged, just like you and I are discouraged. And today we're going to see in Acts 18 that he is at a place where you and I often find ourselves at, and that is willing to throw the towel in and not truly passionately carry out what God has called us to do in life. Now, we're not going to see that up front, because Acts 18, you're going to think, well, there's some great things happening in Acts 18. But then you're going to be able to connect at the very end, I, I pray, that you're going to see where God begins to minister to the discouraging heart of Paul. So in Acts 18, Paul is on his second of three missionary journeys. He takes three trips in his ministry life, right? And this is the second trip he's on. It's a trip about three years. Um, he, in that three-year period of time, he visits city after city basically in the Macedonia area, Greece. If you know anything about uh, the world geography, it's, it's pretty much in the Grecian islands. There was a time that he wished that he wanted to take the gospel into the easternmost provinces of the Roman Empire, but God thwarted him every single time he tried to do it his own way. And so we find in, in, in Paul's uh, missionary journey, second missionary journey, that it wasn't the best of time in his life. The journey started off great. His little mission trip that he was on started off great. But eventually him and his best friend Barnabas, the man who is, who is spoken of in Scripture as the one who, who was a great encourager, they had a falling out, and so they went their separate ways. And before long, uh, Paul got another partner in ministry named Silas, and they began to do ministry. And like I said, Paul at times tried to take the gospel in one direction, and every single time, God stood in his way. Isn't that amazing that there are times that God stands in, the, in our ways because we want to do something in our own will, and sometimes that, that will may be a good thing, but it's not what God's best for us in our lives. And so God opposed him for a while. And that brought on some tremendous frustration for Paul. But he did, as God opened doors in other areas, he responded to that, and 
He began to go in the direction, believing that the Holy Spirit was drawing him somewhere else. And we see that there was this vision from this man to say, come, come to Macedonia and, and begin to preach the gospel to us. So Paul goes down there, and, and again, he's following the will of God for his life. But as he follows the will of God, every single place he goes, there are places filled with great violence towards him. He, he's beaten from city after city. He's opposed in city after city. He's thrown in jail. And so while they're still in Berea, they come to his place in Berea, and, and they have a, a little bit of success in Berea. But in Berea, their opposition rose up and to such a point where Paul said, you know what, Silas, why don't you and Timothy stay behind in, in, in Berea and continue the work that we began here. But in order for it to die down, all this commotion died down, I'm just going to take myself out of the equation and I'm going to head off to Athens. And so Paul departs from Berea, goes down to Athens, and Pastor John took us last week in Acts 17. He finds himself in Athens. And in Athens, and as John pointed out last week, it was kind of a so-so response to him. In other, in other words, there's a lot of people that listened to Paul's uh, proclamation of the gospel of Christ, but very, very few, only a handful maybe at the most, said, yeah, we believe what you have to say. We, we put our faith in Christ. And so, so far in this, in this journey that Paul's been on, a year into this journey, he has experienced uh, some, some high, high, high point moments, but for the most part, struggle after struggle after struggle was the highlight of his, of his year-long ministry. And so in Acts 18.1, it says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, <clears throat> Athens and Corinth were on the opposite end of the cultural scales, right? Um, Athens was known as this um, great city of, of intellectual and philosophical uh, curiosity where, where people um, by the hundreds would sit around and they would uh, philosophize and pontificate on everything from, from law to religion. And so when Paul was in that and was in that in, that, in Athens, I mean, he could really connect because Paul was, was also a very intellectual man one of the best students of, uh, of, of the scripture, of the Hebrew scripture in his time. I mean, he, he was a student of, of all students, according to his own testimony. So he fit right in with the Athenians and their um, pontificating on the things that were spiritual in life. But Corinth was, was another uh, thing to imagine for, for Paul. Unlike Athens, which was highbrow, uh, Corinth was more of a, a blue-collar type of city. It boasted of two ports, and so two major shipping ports um, called Corinth home. So a lot of trade came through this town. A lot of people from different parts of the, of the known Roman Empire at that time would, would make their way to Corinth to, to, to sell and, and buy things and, and ship them all over the world. And so you had this, this conglomerate of different cultures in Corinth, and it was made up about 700,000 people. 200,000 free people, 500,000 slaves. But it was also a very gritty town. It was a town built on moral looseness. They had the original slogan taken by Vegas, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. No, for them, whatever happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth type of mentality. Because personal vices, there was no um, uh, regulations to whatever you wanted to do. In Corinth, 
you could do literally pretty much anything that you wanted to do, you set your mind on. Anything that, that we would say is, is immoral in Corinth, no one made a judgment call on. And so it's into this atmosphere that Paul steps into by himself. He comes from Athens, who boasted of having 10,000 temples uh, to, to 10,000 gods. And Corinth's boast was they had 10,000 prostitutes. And every night, these prostitutes, these prostitutes in the, in the temple of Aphrodite would descend from their temple on the hill uh, in the middle of town. And they would come down and they would ply their trades in the, in the city streets of Corinth every single night. So he walks into the city of 700,000 people all alone and no gospel witness. No one has come before him to pave the way to, um, to speak to, about the love of God through Jesus Christ. These, these 700,000 people with, with no moral compass at all becomes a place where he parks it for a year and a half. Walking into a city all by himself, nowhere to, nowhere to, let, nowhere to go, no, no friends that he can go hang out with and couch surf, on, you know, couch surf his way through Corinth. He steps in all alone with this daunting task of speaking and proclaiming Jesus to a town who was morally corrupt. But in verse 2, this is what God does from This is what I think is very, very interesting. There are moments of, of discouragement for Paul, but in the moments of discouragement, God just seems to surprise him. God just kind of brings things about, people about, events about, that kind of keep uh, Paul... Um, uh, tied to his calling, right? So in verses two and three, this is what it says. It says that he, that he was in Corinth not so long, then he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them in verse three. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So there came a time, Paul's, Paul's alone in the city, and, and we all understand what loneliness is. If, if you are ever a, a road warrior, you have to do work on the road, you don't understand what loneliness is. You go to, to certain towns and cities, and you don't know a single person there, and loneliness, you know, is a part of your existence, right? And so for Paul, that's what he was dealing with. He was dealing with being alone um, in a new environment, in an environment that more than likely spiritually he was very uncomfortable with. But, but God surprises him, and somehow, some way, he is connected with Aquila and Priscilla. Some say that he met them while he was speaking in the synagogue in, in Corinth. And that could be quite possibly true. Now, Aquila and Priscilla, which I think is very fascinating, their lives were upended because of a riot that took place in Rome. As, as the scripture says, they were exiled from Rome. Why? Because there was a riot in Rome that broke out over this man named Crestus or, or Christ. And so in other, words, in other words, Jesus Christ, the preaching of the, of the gospel in Rome was, taking, was making such a divide that a riot broke out among the Jews. And so Claudius the emperor said, you know what? Everyone out. 
everyone out of Rome. And so he expels everyone out of Rome. And there's this mass exodus out of Rome. And part of that mass exodus out of Rome is a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. And they had no idea. They had no idea as God uprooted them and up into their life, you know, in Rome. And he takes them in his own ways. And we all understand how God moves in our own lives in mysterious ways. In mysterious ways, he is moving in Aquila and Priscilla's life, and he is moving them down to Sin City, Corinth. And unbeknownst to them, they will become a tremendous lifeline to a lonely apostle named Paul. So I believe that as God uprooted their lives in Rome, he gives them a second purpose, and that is to join Paul in proclaiming the ministry, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so they, they come together. And this is what I also think is so amazing. You, can, you can't tell me that there are coincidences when you look at Scripture. Everything seems to be threaded together by the very will of God. Because Aquila and Priscilla, they just weren't, just weren't converts to faith in Christ. They weren't Jewish converts. No, no they were tent makers just as Paul was a tent maker by trade, right? And so we find out through this, this verse is that, that they decided to go into business together. Three people, brand new to, to Corinth, um, and didn't have a, probably more than likely, they didn't have much money between them, but they, but they found themselves saying, you know what, we have the same tr- trade together, let's go into business together. They go into business together, they pull their, their resources. And by the way, Paul comes into, into Corinth very, very poor. He has no financial backing. So he's just barely scraping by in life. So they set up shop. Think about this. They set up shop in a, in a town that those three really didn't have a lot of connections in. If you're a business person, you understand that connections and networking, it, that's, what, that's what the game's all about, right? That's how you build a business. So they had to start all the way from scratch in this new city. And there they were making tents for a long time. Now, we believe the scriptures, when you go look into it, they think that there are several months passes by before um, Silas and Timothy uh, arrive on scene. Now, I will say this. During that time, he had to have gone through times of discouragement because he really wanted to preach the gospel, right? That's what he was called to do. He wanted to give his whole attention to the gospel in Corinth, but he had to earn a living. He had to make it. So he spent six days out of his life being a tent maker, right? And according to verse 4, Verse 4, he spends one day a week sharing the gospel. Now, if you don't think for a moment that this discouraged the Apostle Paul, I mean, the Apostle Paul was all in all the time, it seems like, right? But in this situation, for many weeks, for maybe even several months, he was only able to spend just a smidgen of his time doing what he felt so called to do. And can you imagine him thinking, you know, God, you send me down all the way to Corinth and there's this great harvest field and all I have the opportunity to do is just spend a couple hours a day in a synagogue once a week to share this gospel. You've got to believe the discouragement began to set in on Paul because things were not making sense to him by this time. But in verse 4, here comes another aha moment, right, from God surprisingly. And in verse 4, as he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. In other words, he was doing his best, but he was not making any headway. In verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that, that Christ, 
that the Christ was Jesus. Now, it doesn't say this, but you, you read in 1 Corinthians, as well as in Philippians, that when, when Timothy and, and Silas show up, they show up um, with a love offering um, from the church at Philippi. And the church at Philippi, you know, by the grace of God, said, we're going to come alongside of you, um, Paul, and we're going to support you and your ministry while you are in Corinth. And so what happened was that Paul was able to put down um, the tools of the tent-making trade. He probably sold his shares off to to Aquila and Priscilla, and and he was able to devote himself fully to the gospel. That had to have changed things in his heart for for a little bit, right? I mean, he, he was struggling financially. Now he doesn't have to struggle anymore. He was only able to devote one day a week to the gospel. Now he can, he can devote all seven days in, in proclaiming the gospel. And so, so far we're getting this. He's having this roller coaster type of experience in Corinth. Encouragement, discouragement, encouragement, discouragement. Right. And so we go back to discouragement again in verse 6. It says, and when they opposed him and reviled him, He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent from now on. I will go to the Gentiles. Now, now again, listen, this wasn't just a simple disagreement over a cup of coffee at Starbucks. These, These people were so angry at the message of hope in Jesus Christ that they mocked him. He was speaking and, and there'd be someone in the, in the crowd just catcalling him. Um, they abused him verbally. Right? They opposed him. In other words, they, they, they reviled him. In other words, they couldn't stand to look at this man. They were so angry at the truth that he was bringing to them. So ministry for Paul, even though he got to devote it seven days a week, it got really, really hard. Because every single day he was bringing the truth of the gospel to these people. And every single day they were just spitting it back into his face with a lot of venom and anger. To the point where he said, you know what? I'm done with you. Right? I mean, that, that's, that you know that Paul, this is the only time that Paul ever says, you know what? I'm, I'm just done. I, I, I've had enough. I've had enough. Your blood is on your own head. In other words, what Paul was saying in that moment was, listen, I've told you the truth about how you can come to faith in Christ. I've told you about the love of God. I've told you about what God has done for, for all of mankind, and especially for you Jews. And you've rejected it all the way. Therefore, your eternal destination is on you. I've done everything that God called me to do here, and you deal with the truth however you want to deal with the truth. And with that, he shakes the coat, the dust off his coat. In other words, he's basically saying, I'm not taking any of this negativity with me. I'm moving on, right? I've got this new place to go and set up shop to to preach the gospel to. I'm going to go preach the gospel to Gentiles. And this is, in verse 7, it's a humorous moment, right? There's always humor in Scripture when you can see it. He doesn't go far um, from this reviling crowd found in the synagogue. No, he, he sets up a new ministry right next door to the synagogue. He just takes his message a few feet next door. Right? Verse 7. And he left there, meaning he left, he left the synagogue and went to the house of a man named Titus 
Atitius Justus, a worshiper of God. And his house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and, and were baptized. And so there seems to be a little bit of momentum building in verses 7 and 8 as he turns his attention to, to Gentiles, right? But even in that crowd, it's a very small crowd. It's a, it's a one man in his family, and, well, actually two men in, this, in, in the Fetitius and, and Crispus and their families. Um, they come to salvation in Jesus Christ. But Paul still had to deal with the, with the, with the anger and the vilification of the Jews. So you're saying, David, why did you take us all the way through these steps and acts like I have? Because I wanted to show you that in Paul's life in this moment in Corinth, it was, it was a hard scrabble type of life. And every, every few times, God would just show up at the right time to help Paul not give in and not give up. But when you come to verse 9, there seems to be like this disconnect, right, with Paul. Because this is what's going on in Paul's life um, since he came to Corinth. He had to deal with uh, physical assaults. He had to um, deal with um, financial um, discouragement. Um, He had to deal with uh, being in a city um, that was morally corrupt, and he had to speak truth to morally corrupt people. And so his ministry was, was, was filled with some tough times. And just like you and our lives, they're filled with tough times. And just like in, for Paul, he had no idea when God was sending him to Corinth what he would have to face. You and I have no idea what tomorrow's going to bring, much less this afternoon, right? But in every way possible, we have to place our trust in God. So God said, I don't want you to go to the Eastern Asia with the gospel. I want you to go to Greece and the Macedonian region. And I want you to go to Thessalonica. I want you to go to Philippi. I want you to go to Berea. And in all those towns, very few people are going to come to know me. But I'm going to send you there anywhere. In those towns, people are going to revile you, and people are going to argue with you, and people are going to throw you in jail, and people are going to run you out of, out of those communities. And I'm going to send you to Athens, and people are going to laugh at you and, and look down on you and think that the message you're speaking is so wacko and out of place that, that very few will, will truly follow um, after Christ. And then I'm going to send you to Corinth, Paul. And in Corinth, it's going to be the hardest place in the world that I can ever possibly send a person. And so Paul is just trying in his best, trying to put all this together rationally in his head, just like you and I, when, when uncertainty comes into our life and we sit back and we're pondering what's going on in our life, we try to piece the puzzles together, trying to add two plus two and it doesn't equal up. And, and, and at moments like those is when we become discouraged. And that is what happened to Paul. Now we don't know the time frame between verses eight and verse nine. But there seems to be just a small window of time that has elapsed in which Paul became tremendously discouraged. Now, how do we know that he was discouraged? Well, we don't see it necessarily um, here leading up. 
But if you look at 1 Corinthians, he wrote to the Corinthian church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, this is what Paul says about his time in Corinth. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now this is not Paul at his best. He was in a spiritual rut. He was in a faith funk. And on top of that, more than likely, he was also physically ill. And he is discouraged. And listen, at the, at the beginning of verse 9, he is at a place where he is about to tap out. He has had enough. And he was about to put either a a long pause on his calling or just like we see Peter in John 21, he was about to go back to doing something else and not preaching the gospel. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if if, if Paul allowed discouragement to get so much overwhelming to him that he would walk away from, I mean, what would the world look like today if he allowed discouragement to overcome him. And so God steps into that moment and he knows that he knows Paul's heart. He knows that Paul is about to give up. And so he comes to him in a, in a great vision. So Jesus shows up in this vision to Paul, verse nine. And the Lord says to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I'm with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Can I just stop there for, for just, in, just a second? Paul, deep in disappointment, discouragement. Maybe, maybe there's a season that has gone on in his life that it's now to the form of, of depression in his life. Possibly could be there. I mean, if Jesus is going to have to show up in a personal revelation to him, I mean, it's an urgent moment in Paul's life. It is a moment of decision for Paul. And the Lord knows it. Right? And so he speaks words of encouragement to Paul. Now, there's some specific things here for just for Paul. But there are also some truths in Jesus' response to Paul in this vision that I believe is universal to all believers. So if you find yourself in discouraging moments this morning, here's, th- here's three things I want to bring to your attention very, very quickly because I know that my time's almost out. We're going to go through these things quickly as possible. Number one, he challenges us in moments of our discouragement to be courageous. Now, <clears throat> in the original Greek, when, when Jesus tells Paul Do not be afraid. He's really telling Paul, stop being afraid. Now, this is what I I think is very fascinating. There are more more challenges, more encouragement in the scripture regarding, regarding courage than any other topic in scripture. Over 300 times in the scripture, God tells people to stop being afraid. Now, one thing that I've learned, and as I studied this, it's not necessarily that God gives us courage as much as we 
own up to courage. In other words, God gives us opportunities in certain moments to, to take on courage in our lives. We have a moment we can, live in, we can continue living in fear or we can put an end to fear and say, I'm taking a stand and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to stand up to it and I'm going to look to someone else for that empowerment of life. I am going to be courageous. I love Psalm 34. And if there's a scriptures in life that you can kind of memorize or put on your, on your bathroom mirror or your refrigerator door or in your car, something you can look at a lot. Psalm 34 is a powerful um, passage of scripture regarding fear, the whole terminology of fear. We don't have time this morning to look at the whole verse 10, but I just want to read verses four through seven very quickly with you. This is what the psalmist says. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. He delivered me from all of my fears. I sought the Lord and he delivered me from all of my fears. You see there, there's a way that you become courageous. You, you, you begin to seek the Lord and put your discouragement before him. And those, verse five, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of what? Out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. There's a promise from God right there, right? That God will hear your cries of discouragement. And as he hears his cries, he will come for you. And we're going to get to that in a, in, in a few moments. But God is near to you. God is your help at all times. You've got to say, I'm done dealing with discouragement at home. I'm taking my discouragement to the Lord, and I'm going to allow God to deal with something that I can't figure out myself. You draw courage knowing that God is not aloof to your confusion or your concern, but he is near to you. So take, like I said, take your discouragement to him in prayer. Number two, God reminds Paul and God reminds also all of us that he is faithful. God promises us what his, his very presence. That's why he tells Paul, um, I, I am here with you. I'm here with you. I, I'm here in your, in your, in your, in your time of, of, of hurt. I'm with you. When you were beaten, I'm, I was with you. When, when people reviled you, I, I was with you. I heard every single thing, any, all these ugly things, that those people yelled at you, I was right there. I heard them all, Paul. When you laid your head down at night and you felt all alone in that city, no, you weren't all alone. I, I was with you every step of the way. When you, when you applied your trade and you had to build up a business, I, I was with you from the very beginning. When you didn't have two shekels to your name, I was right there in the midst of your poverty. I was there with you when you began to network within the city of Corinth trying to build up. I was right there with you. And, and all along, you were never alone. One of our Messiah's name is Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. God is always with us. He reminds us that, that his presence never, ever leaves us. You ever been uh, just, uh, ever been, been a friend to another a friend in life when they're going through hard times? Maybe they, they were going to a hospital and they were sitting in a hospital waiting room or 
Maybe they're experiencing some crisis. You just go and be with them. You're just sitting with them. Maybe they're sitting with them in their living room. Maybe you're sitting with them in the waiting room at the hospital. And all you're doing, you're, you're, not, you're not pontificating. You're not, you're not telling stories. You're just sitting there with them, right? It's called the, the ministry of presence. You're just sitting there. Maybe you're holding their hand. Maybe you put an arm of comfort around them. But just your presence makes a difference in that person's life. It doesn't maybe change the circumstances, but it changes their perspective. In other words, they know that they are not alone in their grief. They're not alone in their pain. They're not alone in their waiting. They have a friend with them at their side. And that is what God is to us. He is a faithful friend. He never leaves us. Isaiah 41.10. Again, another powerful verse to remind ourselves. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You see, the very presence of God says, I am with you, and there's nothing that I'm not able to do for you. Now, does does the faithfulness of God resonate with you this morning? I hope it does. He loves you, and his loving kindness towards you never ever ceases. His faithfulness renewed every morning according to Lamentations 3.23. God never gets weary of performing the ministry of presence in your life. And lastly, God speaks to our discouragement by reminding us that he is always at work on my behalf. He says, I have people in this city. I have people in this city. Now, now this is what we, we think. Okay, we read in verse 8 that there's some that came to faith in Christ, but for the most part, people rejected the gospel message. What, what God is doing in this moment is saying this, listen, I can see the future, and I already know in the future that there are going to be many, many people come to faith in Christ because of your ministry. So, Paul, stick with it. There are more people that are going to give their lives to Christ, but you've got to stick with it. Don't give up. Don't turn in your, your, your Bible badge now, Paul. Um, and don't, don't turn in your, your apostleship uh, title right now. No, 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 no. Stick with it because I see what you cannot see. I'm working already on your behalf in the future, and there is going to be a tremendous harvest of souls in Corinth. So God is always at work when we don't see him at work. He's always at work for our good, for his glory. There is this great poem by William Cowper who lived in the 1700s and basically a lot of the, uh, some of the old hymns that we sing today are based on his poems. And he was a man who found himself in discouragement over and over again in his life that would sometimes lead to crippling depression. And John Newton, who was the author of Amazing Grace, became a good friend of William Cowper's. And because of a ministry of presence (laughs) to William Cowper, William Cowper wrote this poem about the sovereignty of God and how he moves in our life. This is what he says. We have it on the screen. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break and blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, 
he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but but will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. In closing, will you make and allow the God, through the ministry of his word, through the ministry of his Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the, of the fellowship of other believers, will you allow him to bring relief to your discouragement? Are you willing to trust him that he has got the problem resolved? And I don't know what that means for you. There are things going on in my own personal life, and maybe I'll share this with you down the road at another opportune moment, but, but I'm going through some times too. I'm just trying to figure out, God, what are you up to? I don't understand. But I can tell you this, I can take it to him in prayer. I can trust him with it. And no matter what I think the outcome should be, even if it's not what I, in the end, what's going to be, I can trust that he is a good and gracious God to me. Are you willing to renew your trust in the Lord? Based on what you heard today out of Acts 18, with the ups and downs of life, are you able and willing to say, God, I bring to you my, my hurt, I bring to you my, my problems. I bring to you my disappointment. And can you leave it with him? Pray with me. So Father, we come before you today and, and Lord, um, I, I pray for those this morning that, that are sitting here and facing Lord a another day of difficulty. Maybe it's a a physical pain, a physical ailment, a physical sickness, a long-term sickness. Maybe it's just you woke up today with a cold or the flu and you're miserably physically ill. Lord, I I just pray that, Father, they would have confidence in you, that, Lord, that you will take care of that. And Father, this is not a moment to be glib about trials and uncertainties of life because, Father, they're, they're overwhelming to us. But Father, no matter where we find ourselves this morning, whether it be physical or financial or emotional or relational, Father, we can trust in you that you can take our discouraging moments and empower us to be men and women who are courageous and trust in your unfailing ability in our life. Lord, we speak truth, Lord, in time of prayer that you are a faithful God and there's nothing too difficult for you. You are a God who knows us. You're a God who walks with us. You are a God who works on our behalf in times in which your silence echoes very loud in our lives. Even in those moments, you are at work for us and our good and your glory. Lord, Continue to encourage us, Lord, throughout the rest of the day. Bring the truth of Acts 18 to the forefront of our hearts as we go through life this week. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Northridge Church Podcast. If you'd like more information about Northridge Church, you can find us online at mynorthbridge.org.